Welcome to Global IQ with The Economist. Today we will be discussing the world in 2010 with Daniel Franklin, Executive Editor of The Economist and Editor-in-Chief of Economist.com. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. And joining us today are World Affairs Council members from California, Alaska, Florida, and many other states. This program is another benefit of your council membership. We will take your questions throughout the broadcast, so please do remember to send them to us through the online form. Global IQ is sponsored by the University of North Texas, a student-centered public research university with a global reach. UNT has a diverse campus community that includes students from 125 countries in almost every state. Our program would also not be possible without the willingness of journalists from The Economist to participate and lend their valuable expertise. Today, Daniel Franklin joins us live from snowy London. Daniel joined The Economist in 1983 to write about Soviet and East European affairs. As the newspaper's Europe editor from 1986 to 1992, he covered the great European upheavals from the collapse of communism to the signing of the Maastricht Treaty. After a stint as Britain editor, he moved to the United States as Washington bureau chief and then back to London as editorial director of the Economist Intelligence Unit in 1997. Daniel has been executive editor of The Economist since June 2006, when he also became editor-in-chief of Economist.com. And since 2003, he has been the editor of The Economist annual publication, The World In, the subject of today's program. Daniel, we certainly keep you busy. Uh, yes, well, thank you very much for, for, for uh, having me today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you. You know, for some 24 years, The Economist has produced The World In with an eye towards the next year. And what makes your issue, I think, so fascinating and, and really required reading is that you and your colleagues attempt to read a crystal ball and predict the major events and issues of the coming year. Uh, I think I'll just start right off and say, what are the major themes of 2010 and what can we look forward to and what, what should keep us up at night? Well, I think one of the, the main things, um, pretty obviously, is, is the economy, what, what you might call letternomics, which letter of the alphabet is the uh, economic recovery going to look most like? Will it, will it be a U, a V, a W, an L, or, or, or something even worse? So I think that's one thing that's of concern everywhere around the world, and the out we'll talk about it, no doubt, uh, uh, later on, but I think the outlook is, is rather mixed depending on where you are. Politically, there are a number of uh, elections that are, it's worth highlighting. Of course, the midterm elections in, in America, which are going to be watched with great interest not only there but around the world as a, as a sort of uh, verdict on the Obama presidency so far, halfway through his, his first term. There's also an election here, of course, in Britain. Um, the election has to be held by the beginning of uh, June, but will probably be a little bit earlier than that, and, and there's um, I think a general expectation that power will switch to the Conservatives of, of David Cameron. Uh, and there are, of course, other Im important elections, not least the one, I think, in, in Brazil, um, one, of the, uh, one of the BRIC countries, the B in BRIC, but one that's perhaps been less prominent than China and India, but nevertheless very successful, getting increasing, I think, recognition of a success story under President Lula, but, but he's term-limited, so the the post-Lula era is, is uh, at stake there. Uh, something to look forward to certainly is the Soccer World Cup um, 
in uh, South Africa in the, in the summer. It's the first time that event has been held in the African continent, so that's a hugely important event for South Africa and for Africa more generally. Uh, and it will be, I think, the biggest single event of the year in terms of uh, the world's attention, probably 30 billion or so people cumulatively as a television audience. Um, well, I hate to move from that that uh, what should be joyous occasion to the things that, as you say, will, will keep you up at night. But I, I think nuclear diplomacy is certainly one thing. The situation with Iran is, is very worrying, has a potential to, um, to, to become uh, particularly destabilizing. There's a possibility either that Iran will achieve a nuclear breakout and uh, very close to capability now, and it could, 2010 could be the year when it... Um, definitively achieves it. Alternatively, of course, there could be an attempt to stop it by Israel or even the United States by bombing. So I think that in a year when there's the, the uh, review going to take place of the Nuclear non Non-Proliferation Treaty, that's a, a review that takes place every five years, means that, that nuclear diplomacy is going to be right front and center in the year ahead. Uh, beyond that, uh, clearly the progress in the war in Afghanistan is going to be watched as a major foreign policy concern for uh, the Obama administration and its allies. And then I would say perhaps look out too for social unrest in various parts of the world. Perhaps it's surprising there hasn't been more of it so far given the extent of the, the recession that we, we had in 2009. But, you know, sometimes these things can happen with a, a bit of a delay. It can be a delayed reaction, and it's a, a mind-concentrating thought that there will be about 60 million more people unemployed in 2010 compared with before the recession started. So that's, that's worldwide, but that's an awful lot of um, people who, who, who have lost out as a, as a result of, uh, of this recession, and there could be consequences and um, that ranges both from the, the poorer parts of the world to the rich economies where there'll be austerity programs having to come in at some stage to cope with the huge budget deficits that have been created as part of the response to the to the recession. Well, you know, I, I think when you look back at how, um, say, some of the other great recessions, including, of course, 1929, there's often a great deal of volatility in the years afterwards. That's right, and I think that is to be expected in, in the coming year, that this won't be a sort of smooth glide path back out of recession. Unemployment is one concern. Again, if you look back uh, at the history, as you say, there, there is this pattern that, that recessions that are caused by financial crisis take an awfully long time, and unemployment continues to rise after the uh, economic growth itself has come back. So I think that's a a major concern for, for, for politicians, and also the fragility of the, uh, the recovery is, is caused partly by the fact that so much of the demand to pull us out of recession has been government-led, has been uh, a result of extreme measures of uh, stimulus plans and of uh, record low interest rates. And at some point that... Um, that extraordinary level of support has to start to be rolled back, and the question will be whether the, by then the recovery is, is strong enough, um, durable enough to sustain that, even without that, these extraordinary measures. 
it seems that so much of the recovery is going to be dependent on often maybe the economic relations between China and the United States, even, even beyond politics. Um, China's economic stimulus was very different in a sense than the United States. Do you think it's, it was too much? Is, is the Chinese economy going to be overheated in, in, in 2010? Well, I think that's the big debating point. I was just in China um, uh, this uh, past um, ten days or so ago, and it's one of the one of the great issues for discussion there. You know, is there a bubble? Is there a property um, boom taking place now in China? You see a lot of asset price inflation, um, also in 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 some uh, areas, raw materials, gold, for example, and I think. Um, Certainly, the, uh, that, that there is at some point a risk that that extraordinary injection of demand that China, the Chinese state has, has put in is going to have uh, sort of come, come, come back to haunt us. And the question is whether that happens next year or later and indeed in a more managed way. Um, it's very hard, as, as you know, to predict when bubbles burst, but there is something that looks remarkably like a bubble being inflated in China today, I think. Tell me a little bit more, Daniel, about how you go about producing this magazine, um, The World In. When you start the production, you've had such remarkable writers in, 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 in this issue and in prior ones. Um, well, it, it never really stops is, is part of the answer. It, it's, um, I start thinking about who we might invite the following year and as soon as I've finished the um, one year's edition, um, but in terms of the sort of editorial routine, it starts off in a very British way. In the spring, I have an editorial tea in London with a group <laughs> of perhaps twenty of my colleagues, and we just go around the world and think, you know, what is what? What do you think is going to be important on the horizon? What what are the what are the big changes happening? And so that's uh, uh, and. It, first time when one really asks um, colleagues to, to lift their sights to the year ahead beyond the, the normal reporting that we do. And it's, uh, it's tremendously enjoyable. I must say it's an enormous privilege to do this. And a lot changes between that springtime meeting and what we eventually produce, but actually a lot of the seeds are sown then. And it, 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 tea, tea is a great uh, catalyst for, for our thoughts and ideas. Of course. Well, you've had some great successes. What were some of the forecasts that you that you wish you might be able to take back from 2009? What, what were your what were your misses? Well, to take a couple of them, we've got uh, obviously wrong. We we, we thought that um, the Lisbon Treaty um, was not was was in effect dead after the um, the referendums that had uh, killed it off. In first of all, in France and uh, the Netherlands, but then in Ireland, and of course that didn't happen. Uh, as as you know, these European cheaters are a bit like the Terminator movies; they keep coming back at you, and they never quite die. <laughs> and uh, and in sure enough, the the Lisbon Treaty came back and has now been ratified. So that was that was wrong. Uh, we were wrong about um, the city that would win the Olympic Games for 2016. We thought the Obama magic would rub off on Chicago, but that wasn't to be. As you know, he traveled out to his previous trip to Copenhagen was to support Chicago's bid for the Olympics, but, but Rio emerged triumphant, another sign of Brazil's 
um, rising star in the world. Um, so we got we got that wrong too. But you know, one of the things that it, that I think is important about the, uh, the this volume is we, you can't hope to get everything right. There's always going to be events that um, that, that surprise. That um, this year, for example, we. We, we wouldn't have forecast that, that the biggest news event would be Michael Jackson's death. Um, you can't see these things coming. Um, but it's important, I think, and, uh, and interesting for people to have the, an intelligent best-guess view at this particular moment in time and to give a sense of what's going to be on the global agenda in the coming year, even if you know, it ends up being uh, Rio rather than Chicago that gets the, uh, the prize. Well, I think it, uh, I read in the issue now, Ferguson, you asked him a few years ago to review the first two decades of the world in, and he wrote, it is an axiom among those who study science fiction and other literature concerned with the future that those who write it are, consciously or unconsciously, reflection on the present. Indeed, and I think he, he wrote, actually, that was a very fine piece. We, uh, I, I put at his disposal the 20 years worth of, of our publishing and said, you know, make of it what you will. And he had a very thoughtful look back at what we got right and wrong, but also what it said about the whole exercise and the history of the past 20 years. Now, I suspect that most of our listeners are already subscribers, but, but if they're not, tell us a bit about the world and figures and uh, how you go about picking uh, the countries that are highlighted. There must be great competition to be listed there. Uh, yes, well, we work uh, for, the, for that section, as you can see, as you look at it, we work with our colleagues at the Economist Intelligence Unit who spend a lot of their time uh, looking at country after country and, and um, doing political and economic forecasting, and they have the numbers that go with that. So we tap into that expertise. Um, space is limited, so we can't do all nearly 200 countries or so that, uh, that they that they cover, but we uh, select the ones that I suppose collectively amount to 95% or so of global GDP. Every year we review it and occasionally make a, an adjustment or two. We added one country this year and um, apologies to those countries that left out because of course there are, there are always going to be several that, uh, that we can't cover. And, and which country is expected to grow the most in uh, 2010? Well, the, the champion grower next year is, is Qatar, which is uh, actually way ahead of any of the others, growing by about uh, 25% of course. That's all due to its huge investments in gas. It's got the biggest natural gas <clears throat> plant coming um, facility coming on, on stream, and it's uh, actually, I think, perhaps one of the biggest man-made structures anywhere for, for, for a very, very long time. It's an absolutely giant thing, and um, that's a bet that the Qataris made um, a while back, bet on gas, and it um, it's actually seems to have worked for them. And then which country... Um, next to that, and you go back next to where, you know, what uh, next fastest growing company, you go way down to no other country at this stage looks like it's going to be growing by in double digits next year, but uh, China, of course, is, is up there um, at, at uh, close to 10%, but not quite. In the United States, I think you had forecast at 2.4%. Uh, yes, I mean, uh, any growth is going to look good, I think, for, for the United States after the wretched year it's had, but of course it's hardly the, the sort of dramatic bounce back that you've seen after 
some previous recessions where you have this sort of pent-up demand that's just waiting to snap back. It's a more modest affair next year. And then probably the list you don't want to be on is what's the worst country in 2010? Yes, well, from time to time we've we've asked, uh, again, through our colleagues at the EIU, we've asked them to nominate their their selection for the worst country of the year ahead. And um, previous winners actually have included, um, in fact, one of the best, perhaps most sadly, the best forecast that, uh, that we had was in, I think it was the world in 2001, um, where, uh, so published in 2000, when Afghanistan was um, selected as the worst country in the world in the year ahead because for a number of reasons, because it was economically wretched, because it had had a drought that was going to ensure that that situation was uh, was even worse in the year ahead, uh, because it was run by the Taliban and all the dreadful things that, that they did, and also because of someone called Osama bin Laden who could create problems if he launched terrorist attacks abroad. And, and of course, that proved to be the case. And it just shows that this exercise is not a not an entirely... Uh, frivolous one because countries that are in a truly bad state can end up causing problems around the world. So it was one winner, winner uh, of this very unfortunate prize. Um, uh, we, 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 this year the winner is uh, is Somalia, and and of course Somalia is is hardly hardly a state these days. Um, it, it, it suffers from terrible economic distress and from internal conflict, and of course. Um, piracy for those who venture into its into waters nearby. So I think it's um, very sadly a, a, was was a, a fairly clear winner as far as as far as our colleagues were concerned. You think we're going to be able to get a handle on the piracy because it does seem to be escalating? I think it's very difficult because in some respects the piracy works. You know, the, 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 it's a revenue earner. Um, and where things are as bad as um, as they are domestically in Somalia, it's hard to tackle it from 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 that angle as well. So I, I suppose the solution only partly lies in better policing of the seas because it's such a vast area. Even with numerous ships that have been sent there, it's very hard to do that policing. Uh, and ultimately, the the solution has to lie in um, within Somalia itself. You know, regrettably, when you look at the article where you talk about the worst country on earth, it is in the section Middle East and Africa because really almost every country is in those two regions except for North Korea. I see that Afghanistan is, is, is number four and Iraq is number seven on the list of worst corruption. Yes, those, those lists uh, make pretty gloomy reading and, of course, um, you know, one hopes that uh, there is scope. Of course, if you're way down, you can see um, the potential is to make some dramatic improvements if if the the politics come right and if the uh, infrastructure is in place to to, to um, start addressing those issues. But uh, of course, they they are often very deep rooted and very hard to address. I want to remind our listeners that they can send in questions just through the auditorium. We'll get the emails and we'll ask as many as we can. Uh, we have a question here, Daniel, uh, from Martin. Do you foresee unity or conflict among the BRIC countries in 2010 
Specifically, will there be a widening of differences between major energy consumers, such as India and China, and energy producers, such as Russia and Brazil? And maybe as you comment on this, we might also t touch on what's taking place in Copenhagen now as well. Yes, well, I think, first of all, that the BRICS were a, a brilliant um, concept thought up by um, economists at Gold, Goldman Sachs, and they were it's been a huge, um, if, if you like, um, branding success. It, it's uh, caught on in a big way, but it's actually quite an odd collection of, of countries. You know, China and India um, are by far bigger than than the other two. They're both you know, well over a billion people by now. They've been growing. Far faster. China, of course, has been the star performer, but India has been has been growing um, very quickly recently. Brazil, for a long time, seemed as if perhaps it didn't belong in that com company. But as I say, recently it's a middle-income country which has uh, performed very well under, under President Lula. And Russia is now the one that looks perhaps increasingly the odd one out, much more dependent on, as you say, on a its uh, raw materials, its oil and gas in particular, and uh, going backwards in certain ways in terms of its demographics, its health indicators, and, and um, I think one would also say in its, its democratization, its, uh, its, the trend has been regrettably towards a greater author authoritarianism. And in fact, one of the articles in The World in 2010 suggests that um, perhaps Indonesia deserves to take the place of Russia in that, in that list of four, so it would be the Bickies instead of the Bricks. <laughs> but uh, that said, I think uh, setting up a, an opposition to, between the uh, energy producers, in Brazil's case, very much an agricultural producer as well, um, Russia, Brazil on the one hand, China and India on the other, I think it rather looks the other way around. I think they have a lot of uh, common interests in, in, in that uh, India and uh, China are very hungry for both the farm, uh, farming success that Brazil has produced and the raw materials that Russia has. So it doesn't have to be in conflict. I think um, there are perhaps other reasons to suspect that there might be, not next year necessarily, but into the future, um, tensions between Russia and China. I mean, there are old historical um, uh, fears in, among Russians of the, uh, the threat that comes from China, from the East. And, of course, you just have to look at the sheer relative size of the population and the, the, the space that you have in Russia compared with the um, very much... Uh, more heavily populated China to see that there could be some issues there. Uh, one, one of our listeners, uh, Linda, and it gets to this topic about leadership, and you said there'd be a, a number of elections in, in 2010, and she's commenting on the recent second-term election of uh, President Morales in Bolivia. Is, is this a trend we're going to see of more people being elected who may be less uh, democratic or free market? Uh, well, not necessarily. I think, um, first of all, the, the situation in, in Bolivia was very specific, but it was a great triumph for, for Morales, and I think he... Um, you know, he's, he's actually performed rather well, and sometimes the 
lumped together with Hugo Chavez rather unfairly, I think. Um, I think in other, in other parts of the world there is perhaps going to be a, a mood against incumbents, but that might be the, uh, the overwhelming trend. And in the three elections that I uh, said were worth watching uh, at the outset, so the, the general election in Britain, the midterms in America... And the Brazilian election, I think what you're probably going to see is a, is a, a swing uh, towards, towards the right, if anything, um, and possibly against the incumbent. So uh, it's hard to draw very wide patterns. By the way, in, in, Ch- in Chile, which of course has just had a first-round election, will have its second round in, in um, January. Again, the same trend is visible there that it looks like for the first time um, under under the restored democracy, Chile might uh, vote uh, towards the uh, right against the incumbent. Now, now Kathy, in, in staying on leadership, Kathy in Michigan says, give us your appraisal um, of the perception of, of, of President Obama, um, and I'm very curious about what you think is going to happen and your colleagues think is going to happen in the midterm elections. Yeah. Well, I think there is a, a perhaps a sharp distinction between um, perceptions, as is often the case, at home and abroad. I think at, um, at home his opinion poll ratings have uh, fallen quite sharply. No doubt that was to be expected, but perhaps the, the extent to which they've fallen is, is um, a disappointment to his supporters. Uh, abroad, I think, He's still remarkably popular. He's still um, a superstar when he travels. And, uh, of course, we saw that he, he, uh, he was awarded the Nobel Prize even this early in his president and as he, I think, in, himself would have, uh, accept with, with scant achievement so far in, in the uh, foreign policy field. So I think there is a, a big difference between his... Um, the, the way he's perceived abroad and the kind of cut and thrust of domestic American politics. Our prediction in the world in 2010 is that the House of Representatives may well um, return to Republican uh, majority. There are a large number of seats that um, that uh, are vulnerable for the Democrats. And there does seem to be a, a fraying of the the coalition for change that that President Obama put together to win um, so impressively a, a, a year ago, uh, and and he seems to, you know, on the on the left, his supporters are sometimes disappointed that he hasn't done enough, and in the centre, there are worries that uh, he's supporting trends towards bigger government, bigger spending, and so on, which they're concerned about. Peter David, who wrote your column on this, said that 2010 will be a miserable year for Barack Obama. Yes, now to counter that and to prove Peter wrong, he's obviously going to have to get some solid legislative achievements under his belt and create a sense of of, of dynamism. Um, I think it's true to say that the healthcare, um, getting healthcare through Congress has proved it's never going to be easy, but it's perhaps proved an even uh, more arduous road than uh, than might have been expected, and that in itself has then held up other uh, other parts of the agenda that the administration would have liked to have got through faster. In, in, in particular, one thinks of the the energy bill, 
climate change legislation that um, would have been politically convenient to have gone into Copenhagen with that with that already passed. So uh, there needs to be a sort of sense of momentum, but I think in the end it'll be the economy that above all will will determine how voters feel and there um, it depends very much on what sort of recovery we have and again what's happening with unemployment which I think is going to be perhaps the biggest issue, certainly the one the Republicans are going to um, be, be, be harping on at most. Jobs will be their, their, um, their biggest cry I think going into the midterms. I mean, it really is almost a perfect storm when you look at trying to handle in the same week climate change in Copenhagen and health care reform in Washington a few days before before the, before well, the Christmas that, break. You know, that's the job you sign up for when you become president of the United States. It's not easy. It's almost impossible. Do you think uh, that he's going to uh, raise taxes from the middle class? He's not ambitious for his agenda. Yeah. Do you think um, that he's going to be compelled to raise taxes, and particularly on the middle class, um, before the midterm, or will he do everything he can to postpone that? He'll do everything he can to avoid it because he promised he wouldn't. Um, but of course, the I think the key issue for the economy, apart from you know whether growth starts to come back palpably, is whether he can lay out a credible plan for tackling. Um, the, 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 the huge budget deficits that have opened up and uh, have been severely aggravated, of course, by the response to the crisis. Uh, I would argue you know, that it was the correct policy decision broadly. Uh, one could argue about the details, but um, if America has avoided a second Great Depression it's, and the world, and indeed, it's, it's in large part because of the actions, the very vigorous actions taken by policymakers around the world, notably, of course, in, in America. Um, but it's, it's uh, going to be very necessary, I think, to start to get a sense of confidence that uh, these deficits are going to be brought under control over the media term, medium term. And it's not just a problem for America. It's uh, essentially the same problem here and in, in countries such as Ireland and Greece and elsewhere. And that really gets to the strength of the, the United States dollar. I was wondering if you might be able to give us your views on that as well. The strength or the weakness of the United States. Exactly. <laughs> you know, currency, again, you, you mentioned earlier on, I think, that we could see some volatility, and I think um, if we see it, we're certainly going to see it in the, in the currency market. Um, the, I think what we've seen in recent times is, to some extent, a weakening of the dollar as... As some sort of confidence returns globally, people flock to the dollar as a as a safe haven. Um, and uh, of course, rates of return on the dollar are extremely low. Uh, so when there was some greater confidence in the world economy, there's a search for uh, higher returns elsewhere. So that explains some of the dollar, dollar weakening of recent times. Uh, but of course, that is of extreme concern to other parts of the world, in particular Europeans in the Euro area, the Euro uh, has been strengthening to the point where it really hurts against both the dollar and the Chinese currency, the yuan, because of course the yuan is in effect linked to the dollar. So the Europeans are squealing, their exporters are suffering. Uh, so you have the potential to have a lot of um, uh, tension over, over currency rates, and if we're, if we're unlucky, that could spill over into protectionism as well. 
Caroline uh, says, according to a recent survey by the Eurobarometer, 47% of Europeans see climate change as the second uh, most serious problem, poverty is number one, uh, faced by the Earth today. At the same time, 41% uh, of Americans think global warming is exaggerated, according to a Gallup poll. Um, what, what do you think the reason for this is, Daniel? Well, I think the, the, the politics of it for a long time in Europe have been um, have, have, have emphasized the issue of climate change. You've had green parties uh, in Germany, first of all, and then elsewhere being very influential. You have um, parts of Europe that pride themselves as sort of competitive um, nature to be greener than thou, if you like. Uh, you know, it happens to some extent between American states, but nowhere, nowhere near to the same degree. In America, I think it, we've had a much greater skepticism about about climate change, whether it's the extent to which it's happening and whether it's man-made. And indeed, um, you hear things by mainstream politicians in America, uh, particularly among Republicans, that you wouldn't hear from any mainstream European uh, European politicians. And this despite the fact that you have someone as prominent as, as Al Gore former vice president, being perhaps one of the, the best-known spokesmen on the issue in the world. So you, you have the full range of opinion in America, but you have a much more uh, vocal, distrustful um, strain about, about uh, how real and how serious the threat of, of climate change is, and of course a, a reluctance to pay for the consequences of it as well. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I suppose a lot of us, being uh, Americans driving two large SUVs, are probably saying, well, what is it going to cost to fill up my car in, on the July 4th weekend? Uh, and I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't un underestimate uh, European hypocrisy on this as well, because even <laughs> the Europeans uh, do you know, say that they think it's the most uh, terribly important thing and that they are promising... Um, big reductions in in their own emissions. You know, they they are just as wedded to their own consumption habits as the next people. So that gets to you know, your your energy writer said this is really the calm before the storm. Do you think that 2010 is going to be the year of the consumer or the, or, or the producer? Well, uh, it'll be uh, of, of energy, you mean. I think, uh, mm -hmm. I think uh, it'll bump along somewhere along the middle. You know, oil prices have um, not dropped anywhere near as low as you might expect given the global recession we've had. You know, they're around about the mid-$70 per barrel, um, which is way off, of course, their peak as opposed to $150 um, only in the, the, around the middle of last year. But it's, it's still reasonably high and, and you would have thought that with, with, a, with a global sharp recession such as we haven't seen for, you know, since the Second World War, you might have seen prices drop much further. Now, that suggests to me that there's, um, there is a, a fundamental issue of, of supply going on, that uh, the um, pent-up demand from the fast-growing emerging economies is expected to uh, to keep being quite intense and that at some point in the future we're going to see perhaps some, um, you know, some real issues over energy supply. And 
for all the green tech investment that's happening at the moment, um, I think there are big questions about whether that can come on fast enough to to fill serious gaps in in um, oil output. And, you know, reading your issue and other articles about Russia and projecting for the near future, so much of what Russia may do is tied to the price of energy. It is, and of course, uh, you know, we have an article by. Um, President Medvedev of Russia, who says precisely Russia needs to uh, diversify out of its, its its dependency on oil, and he has this idea of Russia being a high-tech economy, but that's a long way off in my view. It seems to me that um, you know Russia has has in a sense suffered down the years for for having this ready source of revenue. Uh, to hand, and that has been too often an excuse for not reforming elsewhere in its economy. Will Russia enter the WTO? Well, it's uh, it, it behaved rather oddly on that front. It, it uh, seemed to be um, on track to uh, overcome the obstacles that were there, and then suddenly it, it said it was... Um, adding conditions, lumping itself in with other countries to enter. So I'm not sure how really keen it is and whether whether it's going to press that agenda um, vigorously. But I think it will be looking for more close cooperation with America, particularly on, on nuclear negotiations, on um, you know, those areas where Russia and America can, can uh, cooperate, as well as there being areas of tension with Russia as well. Indeed, in the article that the Russian president wrote, he said, we must rely on political and diplomatic rather than military tools in resolving conflicts. But yes, uh, I suppose they'll be paying a lot of attention to the election in the Ukraine in a yes, few weeks. Yes, well, that's, of course, Russia sees uh, very much as part of its area of extreme interest. And uh, even while uh, wanting to... Uh, proceed with cooperation and negotiation around the world, as President Medvedev says. It was he himself who uh, sent a letter, a rather intemperate letter, complaining about Ukraine's behaviour, which was a, an intervention, really, in Ukraine's event in election early on. So, uh, yes, its relations with its near neighbours is always going to be very, very sensitive. Uh, but I think also people will be looking at the internal politics of Russia, at whether there is any gap between President Medvedev, now that he's established himself um, in, in his in his role and uh, has got used to it and has got used to the sort of international networking and so on, between him and, and Vladimir Putin, who's always assumed to be the real power in Russia and someone who has his eye on coming back to the presidency in 2012. And, and then there's some other events that are taking place in Russia that, I, that, that I've forgotten about. One is being the second trial of Mikhail Khodorovsky um, and, and, and what that will mean if, if he is released or, or, or convicted for uh, another decade or so. It's a bit of a litmus of, of the, political, um, uh, the, 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 the political complexion of, of Russia. I mean, it was the uh, arrest and trial of Khodorkovsky, who was, of course, Russia's richest businessman, richest tycoon at the time, that really sent a big signal to the way that uh, President Putin, as it then was, was going to deal with the oligarchs and was going to assert Kremlin authority, uh, often, it seemed, in rather an arbitrary way. And certainly the uh, the, the use of uh, a second trial against Khodorkovsky is, 
it seems um, seems a, a political act rather than a judicial one uh, primarily. So uh, whether or not outsiders have a sense of the, the rule of law being um, just abused by politicians or being something that people can start to rely on, that will be that will be very much seen as hanging in the balance with the Khodorkovsky trial. Mm-hmm. When, when will that be concluded? Do you, do you know? I'm, I'm not entirely sure, in all honesty. I, I don't know quite mm-hmm. how fast or otherwise the uh, the wheels of of, 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 of this work in, in Russia. Uh, but certainly there's a, you know, I think there's a view that it's um, it's been a highly manipulated process. Yeah, well, I was struck. I just had not realized that it had already been six years since he was uh, arrested. And in fact, we did have in an earlier edition, we had a um, an article that was uh, uh, brought out from his prison in Siberia by uh, Mr. Khodorkovsky, and quite a thoughtful one. He's clearly spending been spending his time there in, in Siberia thinking... Uh, about the world and about he, he I think if he if, and this is one of the perhaps concerns for the Kremlin he is um, perhaps rather politically thinks in rather a political way and might be interested in politics if he if he were to be released. You know, unfortunately, and you, this question could be asked in any of the 24 years that you've had the world in, and that is, will there be any progress in 2010 in the negotiations between the Israelis and the Palestinians? Uh, Gassan Khoza asked that question. He says, Ambassador Martin Indyk implied recently in an article that the window of opportunity is rapidly closing. Well, um, that's the sort of phrase that one hear, one one sort of hears almost every year um, you know those windows of opportunities open don't achieve much and then they close and and you never quite know when the right moment might suddenly arise but uh, it's a brave it's a brave person who is an optimist on that front I'm afraid you know, moving over to Africa, you had some really fascinating articles in, in, in this issue, in, including one by the Zambian economist Mbisa Moyo, and I think most, many of our readers or listeners um, read her book, Dead Aid, but she's got a new book coming out, uh, How the West Was Lost, Facing Up to America's Economic Decline and the Threat of China and the Rising Rest, I guess borrowing a little bit from Fareed Sakaria's book. Um, but she says that this is an opportunity for Africa to escape from the yoke of foreign aid. And uh, you all wrote quite a book, uh, quite a bit about Africa. Yes, well, I, I think she's looking to the to the bond market, saying that there might be an opportunity there for you know, as as, as markets look for uh, better returns, um, Africa might be an attractive place, and it's in line with I think the thesis of her uh, of her first book that um, really that the aid dependency needs to be um, moved away from in Africa. There's also I think. Um, as I mentioned, the World Cup is going to focus a lot of attention on Africa, particularly in the year ahead. And we, we also have a contribution from President Zuma who talks about the event, but also the challenge for for South Africa and Africa as a whole. And he makes the point, I think, correctly at the end that, that however much aid you might want, and certainly he says that outsiders must live up to their commitments, which they haven't conspicuously been doing so far, their pledges of age, for, for example, at the, the Glen Eagles uh, Summit a few years back, I don't think uh, 
by any means all of the money that was promised there has actually materialized. But, but beyond that, it's really up to Africa itself and the African government, African people, to do the, uh, the real work in making sure that, that the continent fulfills its, its extraordinary potential. And, of course, it does have extraordinary potential. And as you said, uh, you know, all eyes of the world will, even a lot of American eyes, will be on the World Cup. And uh, I suspect, don't you, that that America may be right for uh, discovering in a bigger way than before soccer, not only as a as a a game that people play, which of course has happened for young Americans for for a long time now, uh, but also becoming the sort of craze as a spectator sport that hasn't never quite taken off as it. A little bit for the for the women's soccer team, which has been so successful in America. But I think now that you have a, a generational shift of uh, young people who are now becoming parents themselves, who themselves played soccer rather than wondering what this strange game was, um, that coupled with, of course, the rise in the Hispanic population in America, which is soccer loving, you have you have a lot of potential, I think, for for soccer to develop much more deeply as a uh, as, as, a, as a spectator and um, passionate fan base sport than it has been hitherto. Well, there may be some people now looking for another sport since they may not be watching as much golf. Well, that's for sure. Not that, not that soccer has, uh, has the cleanest of records in every respect. There's a big corruption scandal right now in Germany over the lower leagues and, uh, and, and uh, uh, allegations of game fixing and uh, there have been periodic... Uh, uh, questions of um, you know the role of money in the sport and so on, uh, but yes, it is it is truly the global sport soccer, and um, it's slightly odd that America has has not entirely stood apart from it, but has not participated in the same. Despite having been a host to a World Cup, uh, it, it's not been the same uh, deep, widespread passion that you would see in many many countries. But you know, the American team could. Um, could perform very well. It's in, in the qualify, same qualifying group as England, but uh, fortunately two countries get to qualify, so we could both go through. Well, as, uh, as a graduate of the University of Virginia, which won the NCAA championship last week, I, I want to see soccer keep on going. So <laughs> we have a question. We have a question from Ed, who says, "What will happen to the British subpoena for Tzibbi Livni in Israel?" Well, I think the subpoena, you know, that, that's a, a bit of an embarrassment, I think, for the British government, and they've promised that they will um, uh, adjust the rules so that um, politicians can visit the country without fear of being arrested, but I think there, that is a, uh, an issue, and of course it may get tied up in, the timing of any adjustment may get tied up in with the politics of the election that we have here. So I think that's a, a, an awkwardness uh, for the British government that it would have um, rather, it, it, it didn't have to face at the moment. I want to go to some topics soon about like what's going to be cool in 2010. But before that, we do that, um, you know, I think over 100,000 people have already died in the Congo just in this year alone. Uh, Mark says, you know, will, will 2010 be the year where there'll be more attention to what's happening in the Congo, specifically the number of women, and I might add as well, men who have been who are raped in the Congo? Well, you'd, you'd like to hope so, but I'm afraid, um, you know, the, 
the truth is that, of course, the world's attention is pulled in so many different directions. Um, it, it, it often takes um, some, some galvanizing, catalyzing event to focus attention on that sort of thing. Um, and it, uh, uh, alas, the situation in the Congo has, has been um, very unfortunate for, for a very long time. So I, I don't, at this point, see whether that uh, 2010 would be a, a defining year for, for, th- for that, but one can hope, of course. Mm-hmm. Let's hope so. Daniel, in, in your position as an economist, you must be giving a lot of thought to various media to um, pursue the brand of the economist, distribute the, the newspaper. Um, there is a section in, in the world in about the about e-readers. Um, what do you do? You, do you exp- I, I guess in 2010 you're projecting that 12 million will 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 be sold. Uh, I read in a recent edition uh, that there's some talk about this, the Hulu. Um, t- t- give us your your thoughts about e-readers and and the distribution of of your 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 content. Well, I think um, e-readers are, are extremely. Uh, interesting because they are at this point where they're really taking off uh, around the world. I mean, America has, has so often the pioneer in this. I think the Kindle was uh, was an extraordinarily extraordinary step, extremely uh, successful, not just as a a new phenomenon, but as a the way that the content was so easy to to obtain, to so user friendly in, in the way that it arrived to you, and that has. Um, also been accompanied by a, a whole uh, series of other uh, people who companies that are putting out e-readers. So you have the Sony, you have the, um, the Barnes and Noble e-reader, uh, and the big question is whether in 2010 we'll also see a, an Apple uh, tablet e-reader. That that's widely expected. And if, if Apple does what it does has done so successfully in other markets, it will change the way people think about these things. So I think e-readers, one way or another, are poised to really change people's habits in a, in a, in a profound way, um, their reading habits. And, of course, that will affect not only books, but, but no doubt magazines and newspapers as well. And, and, and can you tell us anything about the Hulu? I was not familiar with that, I have to be honest. Uh, no, I, I, I don't know about the, the Hulu specifically, but I think the... Uh, the trend is, as I say, a sort of great um, up, upswing in creativity of, uh, of all these devices, not only the technology of it and how they, how they look and feel, um, whether they're in color or black and white, how you navigate between pages, but also the business model that um, the content providers uh, have to, to, uh, to reach the customers. All right, so now tell us, what do we need to do to be cool in 2010? I understand now it's okay to have a Birkin bag, but I shouldn't pay $250 for a shirt. Well, this is here. I'm, I would be the last person myself to tell you about being cool. I'm probably the least cool person there is. But uh, I do have a very cool friend who is an Italian journalist by the name of Beppe Severnini. And, of course, Italians are, in my view, among the coolest people on earth generally. They have an innate sense of... Of, of style. That's right. <laughs> so he uh, he uh, has some fun with a few things that he thinks are going to be cool. Yes, Birkin bag, a Prince of Wales check. Now I don't myself wear it, but clearly I'm not cool enough. 
uh, he talks about... Um, yeah, what I liked uh, was the uh, phone recharger. Yeah, the phone recharger in Europe is a great thing because we've had... Um, we have uh, umpteen different models with different devices. So every time you get a new phone, you you can't charge, the, you can't use the same charger, and you can't borrow somebody else's charger because uh, each model has a different plug. And the Europeans, one perhaps uh, regulation isn't always the most most popular thing in the world, but uh, one bit of effective re- regulation is to get European uh, phone makers to agree on a on a universal standard. So uh, that. The prospect of having a single charger for all phones is there for Europeans anyway. Well, I think our listeners should be shocked. cameras for, for, for cars, which, of course, uh, some cars do have, and he points out that if uh, the children say that mummy's on camera, remember to stop, not to carry on reversing. Well, I think our listeners would be shocked to know that 50 million phone chargers have been thrown out every year. Yes, it's astonishing. And what about if you're about to get your MBA? Well, uh, uh, here again we have uh, a, a, a nicely outspoken piece by um, Lucy Kellaway, who writes for the Financial Times, who says that um, the love affair with business is over, and in particular with the the MBA, uh, that uh, as a result of the recession, the, the economic crisis, the business which was so popular as a career choice and the best and brightest particularly went into the course of the financial world that that love affair is over uh, and the business schools will be among those who suffer from it. Well, we'll see. I've, I've already had a number of concerned uh, MBA students saying, you know, is, do I have to worry about my future? We'll see. But I think it, it is a changed environment for going into business and business will have to work harder at its reputation. Well, in fact, there was quite a bit in the magazine about corporate social res- corporate responsibility, and would, would you begin to see the uh, shareholders taking a larger role in 2010? I think that'll be an interesting theme to, to follow. Yes, and curiously, you might have thought that um, with with such a recession, with companies thinking, uh, you know, about survival above all, um, that corporate social responsibility would be cast thrown by the wayside, and. Uh, uh, companies will be able to forget about it. In fact, um, I think some of the some of the sillier uh, schemes, no doubt, have uh, had their budgets taken away quite sensibly. But at a deeper level, I think um, it, it's, if anything, raised even more the question of what is business's responsibility to society, to, it, to, to the workforce, and of course to the environment. And so, uh, I think that there is a sense that if, if anything, it's um, it, it, there's a need for for harder nosed and and um, clearer thinking about corporate social responsibility or whatever phrase you use to call it sustainability sometimes business and society um, that that will that will carry on being a need for business to think seriously about and and are there now a, a new tax in the u k on bonuses yes well of course there is great anger against uh, the banks, and to some extent, there's a sort of popular um, or populist instinct for politicians to to tax that. Gordon Brown has has had a bonus now announced a bonus tax in Britain, and controversially so, but because of course um, Britain is very dependent on its financial services industry. The City of London is hugely important for the British economy. So although it does uh, 
perhaps uh, is an appeal to voters by someone who is um, who is in danger of losing an election, it would be unfortunate if it also in the process caused a lot of financial services, jobs and revenue to flee the country. You know, France is also, have they passed a bonus tax or are they discussing it? I think they've been discussing it, but the French at the same time, and President Sarkozy has, has been making um, noises about the need to rein in the bankers, but at the same time I'm sure that France would be only too happy to welcome back some of the many thousands of French bankers who work in the city. So let's see, where should we travel in 2010 if we could go anywhere? I guess Davos, which will be the subject of our next uh, Global IQ in January. Yes. Well, um, is, where else? Yeah, well, I think if you, uh, if you like big global events, you might, of course, go to the World Cup in South Africa. You might head off to Shanghai in China, where there is to be a world expo. It's a huge event for, the, for, for Shanghai. They're expecting about 70 million visitors, and it, in a way, it's, um, it, they see it as you know, Beijing got the Olympics two years ago. They get to have the, the World Expo in, in 2010. Um, other big Chinese city, Guangzhou, has hosts an Asian Games, and, and Delhi hosts a Commonwealth Games. So all those things are, are, are perhaps um, uh, interesting if you're, if you're setting your itinerary. If you're politically minded and wanted to be uh, in and around a G20 meeting, you'd have to head off to Canada next summer or to South Korea in November. There are going to be two of them next year. And so the G20 is here, you think, for forever? Or are we going to go to the G2? Ever is a long... (laughs) Certainly here for the foreseeable future as the forum that has really taken on um, more of a role than the G7 or G8, which was the club of rich countries plus Russia, um, that had been um, you know, claiming for itself the right to run uh, the world's economies. The G20 is a broader and more sensible forum because it includes China and India and, and South Africa and other big emerging markets. So it's a more inclusive forum, one that makes a lot of sense at a time when those economies are increasingly important to the, to the uh, the, the way the world works. And it's interesting that Canada, which was in the chair of the G8, uh, is turning its G8 summit into a G8 plus a G20 summit so that it, it broadens it out to include this this event that otherwise would have, if it didn't hold it, might have consigned its chairmanship to something of an irrelevancy. And interestingly, really, neither the United States nor China wanted to be just a G2. No, I think it's, it's certainly true that the G2 is is increasingly important as well. That there's you can't really think of a big global issue where China and uh, and America aren't really the the two key players. I mean, the Europeans would love to be in there as well, and um, but that they're not as effective as a as a combined force as they would like to be. So. But at the same time, I think if the G2 were seen to be stitching up solutions between themselves, then the rest of the world would, would, would worry a lot that they were left out. So it suits both China and America in a certain sense to have the G20 as a broader arrangement. But still, the G20 is, is a big club, hard to, to be an executive decision-making club. And the G2 has acquired recently the... The, 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 the word strategic in it uh, ad, added to its economic uh, dialogue, its summitry. So it's very much seen as a, 
as an important and growing strategic um, forum as well. Well, Daniel, I have to be honest. I've been a subscriber for a few decades, but this is the first time that I've almost read the entire The World in from cover to cover for obvious reasons, and uh, it really is a remarkable, remarkable publication. Congratulations. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to, to be associated with it. Thank you. And I hope that we can get together uh, about this time next year, and we'll, we'll see how you did. Very good. Happy to do that. And also want to remind our listeners um, that we will be uh, back on in January 21st talking about uh, Davos and social networking, tweeting at Davos, the power of social networking, and that will be on January 21st. And we will welcome our new sponsor of Global IQ, Texas Capital Bank. Daniel, thank you so much to, to you and all your colleagues at The Economist for, for being with us. I want to remind uh, uh, listeners who are not yet members of the Econ- or subscribers to The Economist to please go to economist.com. And if you're looking for that last-minute holiday gift, The Economist for the first time this year has just a wonderful wall calendar, and you can find that at economist.com forward slash 2010 calendar. It's not too late to have that delivered. Um, Global IQ is a presentation of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth in association with The Economist. Today's broadcast was generously supported by the University of North Texas. And remember, together, The Economist and the World Affairs Council put you on the top of the world. Is it good? Yeah. It was. Hello? Hello?